The Reimagining Development podcast was recorded on the lands of the Gadigal people, or part of coastal Sydney, and the Ngunnawal and Ngambri people of Canberra, and a number of others across this country. We give our thanks and pay our respects to all Indigenous people. Sovereignty was never ceded. Hello and welcome to Reimagining Development, conversations on the new development policy. It's from Goodwill Hunters in a special series in collaboration with the Australian Council for International Development, or ACFID. As the name spells out, this breakout series is all about the development policy. We want to inject new ideas, fresh voices and innovative thinking into the design of the new policy. I'm Rachel Mason-Nunn, founder of Goodwill Hunters and director at Equity Economics. I'm Jessica McKenzie, ACFID's Chief of Policy and Advocacy. Most of us in the development world have spent the past couple of months deep in thought and conversation about how the new development policy should look. And the aim of this podcast is to bring those conversations to you, the listener. We're casting a wide lens on the aid, development and humanitarian sector. This series brings together established thought leaders, emerging thought leaders, exciting new voices and perspectives from across the sector and beyond. And a quick note on terminology. This is a conversation, and sometimes we'll use the words policy and process interchangeably. We'll get all kinds of terminology wrong, but please bear with us. It's all in the spirit of a free-flowing exchange of ideas. So some of us in the sector are used to asking government for more money to help development programs go further, reach more people, and have more impact. But we might forget that there's another player in town, the private sector. We're starting to see more talk about the potential for blended finance, public-private partnerships in the international development space and more, which is really exciting. And to learn more about this really essential topic, we're speaking today with Christy Graham, the head of the Australian Sustainable Finance Institute, or ASPE. Christy, welcome. Thanks very much, Rachel. Nice to be here. Now, Christy, I think it would be great to hear a little bit more about your professional background and and what you're all about. But to start with, you have a really mesmerizing Zoom background. Um, (laughs) Can you just tell me what it is? Uh, So this is a combination of, I guess, a sustainable renewable energy future in Australia um, with the ASPE swirls, which are sort of part of our branding, which demonstrates um, kind of private capital flowing into and supporting a sustainable, resilient, inclusive Australia and the region. Wow. Well, that's a lovely way to capture you. (laughs) Can you tell us a little bit more about what what you're all about in this role? Yeah, absolutely. So the Australian Sustainable Finance Institute was established by a group of super funds, asset managers, banks and insurers to really realign Australia's financial services system towards a more sustainable, resilient and inclusive Australia. Recognising that Australia's future prosperity and sustainability really rests on our region and depends on our region, um, the interests and of both our work as well as our members extends to regional opportunities as well and looks at the role of, of private capital in the both sort of climate and sustainability energy transition as well as development of our region as well. Great. Thanks, Christy. So ASPE's been around since last year. Can you tell us what they're trying to do? Did you guys put in a submission to the recent development policy? We did, and very much, as I said, recognising that interconnection between the region and Australia's future prosperity uh, and the region as as an important trading and investment partner as well. So the development policy, I think, gives a good opportunity for government to think about the role that government can play, both through policy and regulation, international partnerships with governments, 
and private capital and the grounding that it gives to enable Australian finance to flow to support the region's prosperity. So we very much focused on sort of the financing aspect of the development policy and thinking of new ways that government can partner with private capital to achieve the development ambition that both Australia has and our partners have in the region. Right. So your day-to-day, you would be meeting with a whole lot of people from the private sector, companies, banks, talking about how they can invest in the future of our region. And you also used to work at DFAT as well, right? So you actually help with both sides of that puzzle. That's right. For about 10 years, I was on the DFAT side thinking about how the development program could catalyse private capital for a range of different development objectives across Southeast Asia and the Pacific. Um, Now, on the other side, very much understanding the different types of private and institutional capital and what attracts them, what else needs to be in place to unlock these large flows of assets that, that many of them are managing. So I'm interested in how uh, your submission to the new development policy and your engagement with DFAT and in the region fits into your broader program of works. I understand you've just released an annual roadmap. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. So what we released was a progress tracker that looks at implementation of the Australian Sustainable Finance Roadmap. And that roadmap was developed through a collaboration of 140 individuals, 80 different financial institutions, uh, as well as government and regulators from across Australia, that set out a set of recommendations about what needs to happen with the Australian financial system to ensure a sustainable, prosperous and inclusive future for all Australians. That roadmap really recognised the value of regional partnerships and the interconnection between our region and Australia and the financial systems between both of those as well. So for lots of our members, they are wanting to invest more in sustainable outcomes, not just in Australia, but also internationally. And Southeast Asia in particular is a rapidly growing market. Um, There's a huge energy transition challenge uh, in Southeast Asia and also huge opportunities for Australian investors to diversify um, from sort of developed country portfolios that they have. Okay. I'm going to push you on some of that. So we were really excited to talk to you today about blended finance and the role of the private sector. So this is an area where typically people seem to think that international development sits squarely within the government purview. So I was hoping to ask you, what does the private sector have to do with international development? We're talking about philanthropics, we're talking about banks, we're talking about companies. Explain this Venn diagram to me and why it's so important going forward. It's a really interesting question and something that I think A lot of more traditional development thinkers assume that international development is the purview of either NGOs or government-to-government relationships, but I think there's such a big opportunity to broaden out sort of the influence as well as the outcomes by bringing in different parts of the private sector. And I think, Jess, you highlighted then even through that question, the private sector is really diverse. So being very clear about which parts of the private sector that people are talking about is really important. So it might be philanthropics who will spend their money in a more similar way to a government donor, as in they don't necessarily expect a return from their money. They're um, providing donations to NGO or kind of um, community development type approaches. You may have small and medium enterprises, which are a very large part of the private sector in many emerging economies. You may be talking about large multinational corporates that have either supply chains or operations operating in many of these countries and are big employers or big buyers um, of products being produced by much smaller enterprises. Or you may be talking about 
private capital. So that might be uh, international banks or investors who are investing in large-scale infrastructure projects, for example, in some of these countries or are investing in some of the multinationals that then have operations in those countries. So the private sector is very broad and diverse and what matters to different parts of the private sector will depend on who they are and their interests, both commercial as well as um, sort of broader interests in the region. Christy, it sounds like Minister Pat Conroy is one of the people who's recognising that important piece of the puzzle that the private sector can play. And I remember years ago people would talk about microfinance and public-private partnerships, and now it seems to be more about blended finance and impact investing, but there is that acknowledgement, and I think everyone realises we can't get there if we're not harnessing those funds right. So it's not it's not a totally new idea. A lot of people are there. No, not at all. And and things like microfinance have been around for a very long time. And the financial services sector is still the sector where most private capital in terms of development-focused private capital is flowing to. So financial services is an area that there's a lot of private investment to in developing countries. I think the challenge is that um, we often refer to the private sector as this homogenous, like, collective um, with one intention for being in the sector and one way of operating. And we sort of say in conversations, well, what's the private interest in this? As though it's just one single thing. And I think unfairly, it also leads us to think that the private sector only has one motive in being in the in development, which is profit, which isn't which isn't fair, right? And it doesn't actually reflect, as you say, the diversity of entities that we're talking about. And we're talking about the private sector, like SMEs and philanthropists and banks and and everyone in between is your view that that there is sort of a singular reason for being in development for many of the organizations you work with or or other motivations quite varied i would say for those investors that have a fiduciary duty in terms of they are mandated um, under regulation to achieve best uh, financial return for their members they're interests are because of um, sort of the emerging market opportunities that exist and the ability to diversify across their portfolios. Um, But that doesn't mean that they can also, by achieving that as kind of their number one objective, achieve some very strong development impact outcomes at the same time. So I think there's, there's a slight difference between people's motivator and then the outcomes that they can achieve. And I would also say there's a large difference in terms of those different parts of the private sector's motivations as well. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting. I recently did a separate podcast interview on the opportunity for Australian renewable energy companies in Indonesia. And the opportunity is just massive. And I think you touched on that earlier a bit around your your interest in the renewable energy space. It's just huge. And as you say, the the opportunity for for profit is is enormous, but it also aligns really closely with Australia's development priorities in the region and, of course, Indonesia's own development priorities. Yeah, and I think that alignment piece is something that as, um, I guess, development practitioners increasingly understand the nuance around what private sector is there's more understanding of where that alignment can occur. And it's it's not in all parts of international development. So, you know, there's there's a firm and valuable space for NGOs and government-to-government cooperation. Private sector will not drive or achieve everything that needs to happen um, in international development. But thinking about where it can support development outcomes and the development objectives that both countries um, as well as sort of partner countries have, 
means that there's more money and resources available for those things that the private sector will not, um, for a range of different reasons, be able to to fund or or invest in. Mm. And it applies differently in different places, right? Like Southeast Asia seems like much more of a natural fit, whereas the Pacific, we want to start to encourage that investment more, but the risks might be a little bit higher. Yeah, and there are some fundamentals around different markets that um, no amount of sort of development assistance can change in terms of, you know, size, um, geographical constraints and challenges in the Pacific markets. So it'll be a different subset of, I guess, private sector that is interested in opportunities in the Pacific compared to, uh, you know, international investors who don't necessarily have geographic ties to a particular region. And I think this is one of the really key differences between many parts of particularly the finance sector um, and government in that they're not geographically constrained. So even if they are looking at emerging market opportunities, it's comparing Southeast Asia with the Pacific, with Latin America, with Africa. It's not like a government would say, we want to focus in our region. Um, And therefore, regardless of how challenging that region is, we're committed to to staying the long haul in that region. Yeah. I found myself talking about it much more since the Development Finance Review was announced with Minister Conroy. So I feel like there's been much more of a spotlight put on Dev Finance in a way that hasn't been there before. And one thing I find myself talking about is that it will never replace grant financing, right? Like that is core and it exists for a reason and that absolutely should continue to exist and it does different things. So what we're talking about is the fact that it's additional leverage, if you will. And the the stats I often come back to when I'm thinking about this with people is um, I think the financing gap that was calculated for the SDGs, the one that a few of us have been talking about, it's $4.1 trillion. Now, I'm going to get this wrong and you're going to correct me, Christy, but I think the financing gap to achieve the SDGs by 2030 is currently $4.1 trillion. At our most generous ever in 2021 or 2020, we were at $151 billion globally across all donors. So even at our most generous, when you subtract that, we're still, no, it was 4.2. And then the gap was actually $4.1 trillion. So we're just never going to close that gap with grant financing. And yet, if you were able to mobilise less than 1% of the private assets that exist and direct them towards these really good initiatives that also have development outcomes, things like climate or gender programming, you would actually be bringing huge resources to bear on an issue that you know, otherwise just won't be closed, frankly. Now, I'm sure I've butchered that, but can you just tell me if that's on the right track? No, it absolutely is on the right track. And this is what got me, I guess, interested and and committed to this as an area. I'm very much a pragmatist and it's clear that the scale of the challenge means we need a lot more money, people, expertise and capability at the table than just governments alone. Yeah, exactly. And so if we're not attracting those finances and thinking about how they're designed and how they're evaluated and how they're brought to the table, then it could be done badly or it could be done not at all, in which case, even at our most generous, we're not going to achieve those things. Um, I'm going to keep talking dollars for a second, if that's okay. Um, So the aid program is roughly $4.55 billion based on the recent estimates that were given in the last budget. Uh, that's significant for Australia. And I know that the philanthropics in the private sector overseas are really involved. So in DC, they play a really major role. And in Australia, that's more embryonic. We're just starting to get that kind of scale. But what kind of funding are we talking about with these players? Good question. Um, I So in terms of assets under management, ASFI members 
collectively manage around $17 trillion in assets. I don't want to pretend for a second that all of that is directed or focused kind of in our region, but in terms of the scale, you can see sort of the orders of magnitude of difference that exists between uh, government, government money and private capital. Um, as you say, it's only a, a relatively small percentage of that that would um, need to be in a range of ways, but using blended finance is sort of a good example of some levers that government can um, pull to share risk and make it more attractive for those types of um, capital holders to think about regional opportunities. Did you just say $17 trillion? Did I get that right? Yes, I did, yes. Wow. And we've got, I know that some family foundations and philanthropics are talking about, you know, $7 billion going into this over a 10-year period. Like the scale is really enormous. Oh, the scale is always just striking, especially when we contrast it with what we as an aid sector try to achieve with such small budgets. You know, like particularly projects I'm often struck by in Papua New Guinea where it'll be what feels like such a small budget and it'll be to do something like overhaul the entire transport system of the entire country. Like it'll be this really lofty aim and and yet and then you hear numbers like that, Christy, and it's quite striking. Yeah, and like I don't want to pretend they're equivalent because I think that's um, doing both sort of grant funding as well as um, private capital a disservice. They're... They're four different things, but if you can find a way to achieve some of those complementary objectives, there's huge potential for the outcomes that we've been talking about. Is anyone doing this really well? Like, is there a gold star of blended finance country that you look to as an example? Is it Australia? Like, where do, who's our role model here? It's not Australia yet. There's potential, but um, but not yet. And I think there's a few key elements for those countries who do do it really well. The primary kind of critical success factor, I would say, is having a standalone institution that does this at scale with the right expertise and can invest in in countries and in sectors and in deals for the long term. So rather than um, sort of changing in accordance with political cycles because um, private capital takes a very long-term view. So if you think about a super fund, they're investing for members' retirement, which may be 30, 40, 50 years down the track. And so they do take a very long-term view of, of opportunities and need kind of certainty over that period. So development finance institutions in many countries provide both the country-level expertise in emerging markets as well as the sectoral expertise. And by co-investing alongside um, private capital from those countries but also from other countries, they give those co-investors sort of the certainty skills um, and entry points into those markets that otherwise they're not able to uh, find themselves. So just to pry a bit on your submission, was part of your submission on the new development policy to recommend we have a, a DFI, a development finance institution? So in the, the development finance review, we were very clear that these types of institutional arrangements would allow private capital to be unlocked at scale. I think we we didn't go so far as to, to sort of name what that institution should be called because in lots of countries, um, you know, the UK, the Netherlands, the US, even the Canadians kind of have set up a standalone institution and whether they're um, tacked on to export credit agencies or set up independently, I think um, the institutional structure is one part of it, but it's really the capability, culture um, and longevity 
and expertise within those institutions, that's really critically important. Do you personally have a view on what structure works best? Yeah, so I think where you have a standalone institution that has the expertise both on the development impact side as well as the um, sort of blended finance side is where we've seen internationally DFIs be most successful. So a lot of the um, MDBs as well as some DFIs come under criticism from um, private investors or, or private capital because they don't get out of markets early enough. So they're not particularly additional in the way that they make investments and um, are often seen to be hogging deals rather than kind of moving out and, and letting other investors come into those markets or those sectors as they become more developed. I think if Australia were to set up a DFI, that would be absolutely critical. So playing that catalytic role. And I think there's domestic examples like the Clean Energy Finance Corporation that does that very, very well. So building on the domestic expertise that we have and taking that to an international um, sort of a, a regional approach in terms of investment strategy, I think would be um, incredibly valuable and, and for Australia give us the opportunity to be a much more significant player in the region. Yeah, we're doing it well domestically. So if you just take that lens and apply it internationally, I know that their, you know, their clean energy is the focus and it could be broader than that. I did, by the way, hear DevPol was saying we could call it Dev Finance Australia. They gave it a name if we were to set it up. And Axit's been calling for a DFI for a long time. I think for me, it's less about whether or not we establish a development finance institute in Australia. And it's more about centralizing those expertise, as you said, and making sure that we have more of a portfolio approach to it. And you hear all these examples like with BII, the British version, um, and I think ODI has been doing a fair bit of writing on this through Alberto Lemma. But you have this group of financial specialists who come to it and they've been trained in profits and ROIs and they're effectively applying that lens to what they're doing in the best way possible that they know how. Whereas really what you're asking them to do is approach some of the riskiest projects, the ones that but for this financing wouldn't happen, right? Like the young woman with the solar panel cook stove that no one else is going to fund unless you actually take more of a risky approach and you remove that risk for the private sector. So that's where governments can play a really important role. And so the private sector comes along and invests. So Christy, that's my question. How do we, you've touched on it slightly, but how do we make sure that these funds are additional? How do we make sure that they're well-designed? And is there good m and out there on this? Like I understand BII is only just, they've got a huge portfolio, but they're even opening up their own window to really focus on development impact within that. This is where I think the marrying of development capability and understanding of development impact with the financial expertise to ensure that financing that's provided is truly catalytic is absolutely critical. And as, as you highlight, Jess, other DFIs haven't necessarily done that um, as well as they could have and many have now gone back and said we've, we've lost our focus on impact and we need to be better at integrating impact throughout everything that we do. We've turned more into a financial institution and less into a development um, finance institution. So making sure from the outset that it's both staffed with people that can speak across both of those things and that an investment strategy and a mandate is very clear about the level of return that's expected from the capital that's injected is essential. Otherwise, you're kind of creating these perverse incentives if you're expecting market rate return but expecting these programs to be catalytic and additional in what they're doing 
it doesn't add up. So making sure that you're thinking through, I guess, unintended consequences of the institutional structure, given the mandate that you want it to, to achieve in the catalytic role, you want it to play in the market. In terms of um, MEL frameworks and, and how you monitor and evaluate these things, I think this focus on additionality, sort of financial additionality, as well as the additional expertise that these institutions bring to these markets, as, as well as kind of your standard development impact metrics, are really important and really important as sort of a management tool to make sure things like your um, investment strategies are achieving what you expect them to achieve in the way that um, the investments are being made. Yeah. I guess I'm trying to look at what the grey area is here, right? Like where where do the critics sit and look at this? Um, because I suppose when you're talking about a return to investors, there's a lot of people that would say, but what about the beneficiaries? What about the, the people um that need to benefit or that are that are in a more vulnerable position and are affected by whatever this investment is, can you duly be accountable to your investors and to your communities? And I guess that's that triple bottom line concept that that we're understanding more and it's the whole basis of CSR, right? Like we are understanding you can be accountable for, for financial and a social return. But I suppose to get you to sit <laughs> on the other side of the table, where does criticism stem from mostly? like about the the role of the the private sector in development i think it's exactly that it's there are other needier people particularly for government development dollars than the private sector and i definitely don't disagree with that there is always going to be a need for a lot of grant finance to support ngos and and others who are currently excluded from economic systems but if you look at um, even in, in developing economies, the vast majority of populations are economically active. And so they have interactions with um, the economy, whether that's as a business owner, a sort of sole trader, as a holder of a bank account or a, a savings account. So they are part of the economy and they are paying for goods and services. And increasingly in these countries, many sort of basic services are provided by some sort of private sector entity, so whether that's telecommunications, health, education, banking, and people have different views on whether or not government or the private sector should be providing those basic services. I, I think I think that's spot on. And when we think about where a lot of the controversy has been in development, particularly more so in the 80s and 90s, it was around the privatisation of, of public assets like water utilities and um, and telcos and 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 whatnot. And so I don't know, it feels like sometimes we enter that space a bit again when we talk about it. And I, I question, um, is that is that the risk here that the private interest is always going to be in privatization or is that just you know overgeneralizing? I, I think though as has happened in kind of countries like Australia, the risk is that the government is not commercially savvy enough to get the best deal for taxpayers or consumers, I guess, when they do that privatisation. So the way I think about it is privatisation in and of itself is not necessarily bad, assuming that you have a government that is well-placed to negotiate on behalf of its citizens and taxpayers for a good deal. And, in fact, part of many people who sort of see privatisation as um, a good thing because you're able to 
get the commercial rigour and um, the benefits of a less bureaucratic, more efficient um, sort of operator for many of those assets over time. So uh, this this debate, I think, is is slightly separate in terms of how do you get the benefits of private capital and and sort of the innovation as well as the um, resources and expertise and capability that sits in the private sector and harness that to achieve development outcomes. Can I jump in? I was really surprised when I started working at ACFID how many of our members were involved in impact investing, the NGO players, and a lot of them have taken it upon themselves to set up an impact investment arm within their own organisations and they've sought legal advice and created new structures and new management organization um, arrangements so that they can do that. Now, that's fantastic in my mind because, you know, from a development outcomes point of view, it means that people who understand the systems and are really purpose-driven are at the heart of helping deliver these. It means that they're in a good position to provide accountability for some of the bigger government processes that might be underway because they, they're fluent in the sector, if you will. And also, for me, it it helps broaden the secure financial footing for NGOs in a new era, basically. But I was surprised. We've actually got a Dev Finance Working Group within ACFID. Um, what do you think about that? What's the role of NGOs, Christy, going forward? I think they can bring a huge amount to not just the conversation but to actually how this gets rolled out on the ground and the linkages with community, the understanding of um, how things operate in country is a huge, I think, untapped uh, wealth of knowledge that NGOs have. I think many NGOs have been in small enterprise development for a really long time and they probably wouldn't call it that. Many of them would call that sort of community development, but essentially it's supporting small and micro enterprises in country um, and it's not a big jump for a lot of NGOs to then bring on additional source finance to support that work. So I think it's a, it's a really interesting development. I think internationally we've seen um, probably even more rapidly than in the Australian context, NGOs playing a really critical impact-focused role as intermediaries in this space. That's always nice to hear. Thanks. <laughs> it strikes me everyone keeps mentioning climate in this space, like the role of the private sector and impact investing in blended finance, and it really seems that it's essential for climate change activities in particular. It also strikes me that gender lens investing is a really good way to go about it. Why, why does everyone feel that way and why is it essential there and what else is there? So I think the return side of climate mitigation are probably easier to uh, immediately see and the scale of the opportunities on, for example, renewable energy match up particularly with institutional capital requirements. So for an institutional investor, whether that's a large international bank, a super fund, an asset manager, they want to make relatively large investments but also diversify their investment portfolio across a range of different, whether that's infrastructure assets, um, across a range of different countries, a range of different markets. Um, diversification is kind of a key principle of how you manage risk in finance and so um, the scale of the opportunities really matters. So for them, investing in small and medium enterprises without a range of intermediaries that kind of make that into a deal size that they can look at is really challenging. So I think that's part of the reason that the, um, the scale of the opportunities as well as the 
um, economic opportunities coming out of the transition, given the scale and pace at which energy transition will need to happen, is pretty compelling. Got it. So the scale, it's palatable with their clients and their memberships. Also, I'd imagine there's some good metrics being developed. So I'm really interested in how they choose their own programs. So here are we focusing on a new development policy. What do they think of that? And do they have their own? Are they ignoring it? Are they developing something in parallel? How is it all working? So I think this is where the terminology kind of really doesn't overlap. So um, an investor or, you know, a bank would never think about a program. It's about um, an asset or a company that they're looking to invest in or an infrastructure project if you're looking at project finance. So it's it's generally some of them will have allocations towards, for example, climate solutions, um, and some of them will map the impact that their portfolio is creating across the SDGs, but they won't um, in, in the way that a, a government development program or a, an NGO actively says we are achieving, going out, setting out to achieve this impact in this country and then developing programs to do that, it's sort of the reverse in the way that private capital thinks about it. It's, it's we have these portfolio targets, we have a range of different options as to how we might achieve them, how does that all fit together and overall how can we achieve both our risk, return, liquidity and impact objectives. Nice. I don't mind that order, actually. Makes sense. And I just wanted to uh, also close by asking you, Christy, I understand you sat down with Treasurer Jim Chalmers um, late last year, late 2022, and I'm keen to hear your sense of how this is a priority across the whole of government because one thing that we see from this development policy review is is a focus on um, the whole of government involvement in development, which I think is encouraging to see. So I'm interested in your perspective and perhaps you could tell us a bit about what the Treasurer said. Yeah, I entirely agree that having a development program that involves, and I would say not just whole of government, but whole of Australia, um, sort of perspective and strengths and taking that to the region is a really compelling proposition. So in terms of where Australia is thinking about this domestically, the Treasurer announced that government would look at introducing mandatory climate-related disclosures. So all corporates as well as financial institutions need to think about and publicly report the climate-related risk uh, across their organisations and make that uh, accessible for investors as well as other stakeholders. And they're also thinking about what a broader sustainable finance strategy looks like. So very much recognising the critical role of private capital to achieve Australia's sustainability objectives, so climate as well as um, more broadly, and how government, both policy regulation as well as government capital and the balance sheet can actively contribute and support the growth and credibility of sustainable finance in Australia. What I think is even more exciting is thinking about how Australia takes that full-team Australia approach to the region and supports um, other countries to follow on that path and thinks about catalytic capital as one of the many tools and levers that we have as part of the toolkit. Mm. It's an exciting vision. And I think as we alluded to at the start of this episode, in addition to submissions on the new international development policy uh, having just closed uh, and being um, drafted now, there is also a development finance review underway at the moment. 
Um, So I guess to close, what are you hoping comes of that? What are you hoping changes as a result of that development finance review? So I think the development policy needs to come first. What you need to understand is what you're looking to achieve and then thinking about where there may be a role for private capital in that. I think where some of these things often come unstuck, and back to your sort of previous comment, Rachel, where are the criticisms? They are when you're thinking about the financing tool before you're clear about what outcomes you're looking to achieve. And as I said, private capital will not be appropriate to achieve all of the outcomes that the development policy will seek to achieve. But where there is overlap and there are some particular sectors, so things like infrastructure, clean energy, agriculture, financial services, then thinking very deliberately about what role there might be for private capital, which parts of the private sector there might be a role for, and then co-designing kind of mechanisms and particular programs to unlock and unleash the power of that. I'd be very keen to hear from from both of you what what you think um, is likely to come out of both of those things, the development policy and the dev finance review as well. Goodness, that's the entire focus of the series, Christy. Um, that's why we're doing all these interviews to try and answer that question. I'm going to put Jess on the spot and throw to Jess there to, to start with. Love the question. I think that the Dev Finance Review is really important because it's the first time we're looking at all of that in a comprehensive way from Australia's point of view, both within government but across the whole ecosystem. And I think it's this real recognition that we're all part of this ecosystem in international development. And it's not just on DFAT to help deliver this stuff or managing contractors, but there's this new way of approaching a development program. So I think the fact that they're taking that approach in itself is a really big step change. I really welcome it. I can't wait to see the results of it. I hope what it does is it really looks at loans and debt distress in the Pacific with a fairly interrogative lens I want them to establish their blended finance portfolio a little bit more. I think that there's huge potential there and we're somewhat behind some of the other donors and there's great lessons to be learned. So we have this blank slate in a way where we could learn from others and design something that's even best practice right now and there's a real opportunity there. Like I said before, I don't think we should race into establishing a DFI. I think it's more important to sort of centralise this stuff. And at the moment, the way that we engage, as I understand across the sector with philanthropics tends to be almost on a person-to-person relationship. There's no like coherent strategy or or unit tasked with that kind of engagement. And when we're talking about multi-billion dollar investments that are often sort of racing towards deals alongside um, DFAT, it makes sense that there's a bit more of a structured approach. And with the dev policy, can't wait. I think we've seen, you know, eight to 10 years of the program being you know, really stripped back in terms of cuts. And I think this is a chance to not just race back into things, but take a real thoughtful lens on how we rebuild for the next 10 years. Mm. Well, I think I think to add to that very briefly, often when I'm facilitating a workshop or even um, writing a strategy, I write down some adjectives of how I want it to feel. And so <laughs> instead of answering um, in terms of what I'd like to see, um, in these new initiatives coming up in 2023, I think instead I would point to how I hope they feel for us, not just as a development sector, but collectively um, as an Australia that that wants to be a generous and and helpful partner to our region. Um, And I would say I hope it's creative. I hope this is an opportunity to bring fresh solutions. Um, We've talked in other episodes about this sense of um, 
scarcity and austerity that we have felt as a sector for some time and that we're now having to transition to um, a feeling of more abundance and creativity and a revitalization of the sector. And that's a really hard shift to make, but I hope that that's how it feels and I hope that's reflected in the content um, of the review and the new policy. Mm. Mm, exactly. And it's a bigger tent now. That's what I like the acknowledgement of. And that's, I guess, particularly pertinent with talking to you, Christy. One thing we've been saying at ACFID is that there's this, uh, there's this tendency to rush in and talk about more dollars for an aid program when there's been cuts. But actually, what I really like about doing a development policy first is that you're reassessing the values, the objectives, the sectoral and geographic reach first. You look at how we deliver and what we deliver, and then you can add resources afterwards. And I like it when strategy comes first. Thank you so much for your time today, Christy. We've been Jessica McKenzie and Rachel Mason-Nunn on the Reimagining Development Policy podcast. Tune in again for more hearty conversations about how we can rework and rewire international development for future needs. Thanks again. Bye for now.